All right, well, good morning. I promise what you just saw up there up front was not an optical illusion. That was Todd praying for me, and next to me was Jared. And so there, it was not like smoke and mirrors or anything like that. It was not just one of us doing all those three things. It's alike as we look and sound and uh, sometimes even get mistaken for each other. That was, that was really us up there. So uh, it's good to be with you all uh, from this perspective. A lot of the time I'm uh, enjoying worship with you. I'm, I'm up front uh, as well, but this is a unique place, and I, I do enjoy uh, being able to share with you, perhaps even from a different perspective. Um, now I'm, I'm out of full-time ministry. I'm, I'm now working in a what you would call just a regular job, and so um, I think that the Lord is is starting to change some of the ways that, that I've historically thought about my role uh, in this church. And so, um, anyway, I'm, I'm excited to share with you all from God's Word this morning. So, if you're a billionaire, I'm sure that's most of you in this room, and you're in the market for a luxury survival bunker where you can ride out the end of the world in style and in comfort, I have some great news for you this morning. Vivos Europa One, which is located in Germany, is an invitation-only, five-star, underground survival complex, and it's modeled after a cruise ship for the elite. So this expansive shelter is one of the most fortified and massive underground, underground bunkers on the entire planet. According to an article in Forbes magazine titled Billionaire Bunkers, this hardened facility is capable of withstanding a nuclear blast, a direct airplane crash, biological and chemical warfare, shockwaves, earthquakes, tsunamis, electromagnetic pulses, and pretty much any armed attack against it. The complex, the, the complex includes about 225,000 square feet of secured blast-proof living areas that go along with 2,500 square foot private villas. So these private in- improvements will include all the typical amenities that you would expect from an underground bunker villa pools, theaters, gyms, kitchens, bars, bedrooms, deluxe bathrooms. The possibilities, according to the article, are only limited by each member's personal desire. That's all. Of course, it all comes fully equipped with a water treatment plant, power plant, hospital area, restaurants, and filtration and cooling systems. So keep in mind, though, that once the gates are locked, the only way in or out of the property is through helicopter. So the expectation is that members would arrive to the complex, uh, to one of the local airports via their own private jets, and prior to lockdown, um, and then the helicopters, the Vivos helicopters, would shuttle them to this uh, complex behind the sealed gates from the general public, probably trying to get out of the way of disaster as well. Members will then enter the shelter and access their private luxury quarters. So now, while, while many might see a lot of these luxury amenities in an underground bunker at these facilities kind of unnecessary, don't worry, the developers are arguing that these features are critical to survival. According to CEO Robert Vicino, we are proud to bring this epic project forward in these increasingly dangerous times. And here's my favorite part. He says, these shelters are for the long term, a year or more, so it had better be comfortable. It's kind of amazing, right, when we think about that, the the great lengths uh, that somebody would go to to secure their future and to make a a really comfortable one at that, even in an an underground bunker. 
And so there's, there's still so many what-ifs in my mind about this, you know, the, the whole part about arriving in your private jet. Um, you know, what, what if maybe you can't find a pilot for your private jet in order to arrive at your underground bunker because, I don't know, there's a nuclear explosion or something? You know, that, that could prevent some things. But it's easy to criticize uh, a perspective like that. But really, really, we're all just like billionaire bunker builders in that we all love to plan ahead for our future, no matter how temporary that future may be. We all put a great deal of time and energy and passion and intelligence and financial resources into preparing for our futures and our comfort. But our call on our lives as believers, as we'll see in our passage this morning, is to consider our lives in light of eternity. We're called to be just as industrious toward the eternal things as we are toward the temporary things. So let's look together at a parable on that topic this morning in Luke chapter 16. And I forgot to mention the page number, but you'll find it. Luke chapter 16 in the Pew Bibles, Bibles in front of you. And when you found your place, please stand as we read together from God's Word. <clears throat> Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I pray right now for your Holy Spirit to come and be the teacher this morning. Father, would you help us to consider that all of your precepts are right and to turn aside from every worldly and false way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, so to begin, as we uh, talk about this passage, let's, let's get some big picture context for where this parable is at in the Bible. One of the, the key features of Luke's gospel 
is a section of it where Jesus is teaching on the way to Jerusalem. So in, Jap- in chapter 9, Jesus says that he, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so that phrase that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem means that he set his face to the place where he would die. He wasn't delusional. He wasn't unaware about what would happen to him there. And so why does that matter for this parable? Well, because if we don't pause to consider that Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem is full of discomfort and rejection and suffering and even eventual death, then us following him and listening to his teachings along the way kind of loses all of its meaning. So his teachings are not intended to help, his teachings are intended to help his disciples and therefore us as well learn to count the cost, the heavy cost of following him. And it's not easy, and it's not comfortable, and it's not safe. And so Jesus makes no illusions about that during his teachings on the way to Jerusalem. So keeping that context in mind, let's look again at the parable before us. We're just going to walk through some of the details of the story, verse by verse. So first, verses 1 through 2, you could think of these as the setting uh, for our parable. So let's look at the setting and the characters. There's a rich man, and there's a manager. Pretty simple. The rich man apparently owns a business or he owns some property, and he has a manager or a steward, and he's put that manager or steward in charge of uh, the day-to-day operations of his, his business. So the nature of the manager's job um, obviously gave him some easy access to finances and resources of the estate. And apparently the charges had been brought uh, against the manager that he was wasting the owner's resources. And this word wasting, it's the same word uh, that we see just one chapter before in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal son, where it says the, the son squandered his father's property. So we're not really sure what the, the manager did, uh, but it was obviously reckless. And it was obviously true, because in the next verse we see that the manager takes absolutely no attempt to try to defend himself against the accusations. So the, manager, the, the owner tells the manager, turn in the account of your management. Literally, he says, give up the business. You're done. So mistakes in business are one thing. Recklessness and wastefulness in them are a completely other. So now, jump into verses 3 through 7, and let's see how does the manager respond uh, to these things. So the manager says to himself in verse 3, What shall I do since my master is taking away the business from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. So I've only witnessed, so far at least in my uh, career, one firing in my office. And it happened quickly, and it happened very quietly. One, one day the employee was there, the next day his desk was empty, and everything was gone. So this manager, I'm supposing, is, is guessing that he only has a few critical moments to spare uh, in his tenure left at this work. And he's probably also assuming correctly that he will not be receiving a severance package uh, from the owner. And so, in light of that, he devises a plan for his future. He's not a big fan of manual labor, I guess, because he says he doesn't want to dig. And he's too ashamed to beg. And so he says, I've got it, verse 4. His goal, apparently, is to ingratiate himself toward the owner's debtors in such a way that after his job is over... They'll receive him into their houses, even after his management career is done. So he knew he would be needing some friends, and so he goes seeking those. So what does he do? He calls up a couple of his master's clients. They apparently owe a debt to the estate, 
These debtors are renters, uh, perhaps, and they may have paid their debt, uh, they may have paid their rent by giving a fixed amount or a percentage of the produce for the year that they grew. So given that they owe a debt and they're being called on oh so suddenly to come into the manager's office, they probably show up thinking the rent's due, right? So how, how much do you owe my master, the manager asks each one. Now these debtors are really thinking they're in, in hot water. He, he really did bring them in to call, a loan, call the loan in, and so they're thinking they're toast. So the first debtor owes 100 measures of oil. This is something like 800 gallons, as much as three years of wages for a daily worker. But rather calling in the debt, as the renter expected, the manager tells the man to cut it in half. Sit down and quickly write 50, he says. You can kind of feel the, the frenzy building uh, in, in the manager's interactions with the, own, with the renters. Perhaps the owner has stepped out for lunch uh, for a few minutes, and so he expects the manager to be gone and have the desk cleared by the time that he gets back. So he has to act fast. So the second debtor owes 100 measures of wheat. And this is another huge amount of debt. It's equal to the yield of around 100 acres of wheat. It would have taken six to nine years for the average daily worker to accumulate that amount of debt. Again, rather than calling in the debt, the manager tells him to reduce it, this time by 20%. So we can assume now, you just get this idea of a pattern that's going on with these first two debtors. We can assume that there, there are other debtors out there, there are other renters uh, for the property, and so we're just given enough to get an example of what's going on between the manager and these renters. So we assume that he called in others as well. So now we arrive at the moment of highest tension in this story. The master comes back from lunch. And what will he now say to the manager who just used his final moments on the job to cook the books? So the owner's response in verse 8 is probably not at all what we would expect. Look with me there. He says, it says, He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So he praised and he congratulated the manager for being so clever. Note that it doesn't say he commended the dishonest manager for being dishonest, only for his shrewdness. But still, this is kind of a tricky thing to grasp, right? This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us at first glance. But think about it like this. How many of you all have seen Ocean's Eleven or Twelve or Thirteen or however many, Fourteen, Fifteen now? Um, so Ocean's Eleven and Twelve and Thirteen... Uh, great movies, great story about a group of people who get together and they devise a plan, a meticulous plan, uh, mind you, to rob, rob a casino. And so what, what we enjoy about watching in those movies is not that the movies glorify theft. Uh, it's really not the main point of the story. A, a lot of the main point of the story is really how meticulous, how driven, how innovative this group of people is when knocking off the casino. And so you, you stand back at the end of the movie and you think those guys were geniuses. They thought of everything, every step along the way from beginning to end. They planned it all out meticulously. And so I think it's the same kind of thing with the manager and the owner in this parable. The owner stands back at the end of the story and he thinks this guy showed such incredible determination and acumen in taking care of his future not only are the renters now in the manager's debt, 
But now the owner can't even say anything about it for fear of losing face with the community. You can imagine that the renters were thrilled and overjoyed at the reduction in their debt, and so they probably talked about it. So to lose face for the owner uh, would have been a bad, bad thing. So he stands back and he thinks, what, what an amazingly meticulous plan this manager crafted. That's shrewdness. And that's the end of the parable. So as, as we look at this parable, and we look at it through the lens of interpreting it into our own world and our own context, this is, this is notoriously one of the more difficult parables uh, in the Bible to try to explain. And, and I think one of the reasons why, and one of the, one of the hang-ups for us is this word shrewdness, right? It's not a word that we throw around a lot, and we tend to think of shrewdness in perhaps a slightly negative sense. So, you know, you don't usually list it in terms of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, shrewdness, and self-control, right? It doesn't, doesn't typically enter the Christian's vocabulary. So it doesn't belong, and we feel just a little uncomfortable, if we're honest, with it appearing as a virtue in Jesus' parable. But here's the main idea. The owner in the story, and Jesus in real life, praise the manager for thinking about and planning for his future and his comfort. And what Jesus goes on to point out is that sons of this world, people, are generally more industrious and more astute in taking care of worldly matters than the sons of light are in taking care of eternal matters. So they are more adept at temporary affairs than God's people are at taking care of eternal affairs. But, here's the thing, it's not just sons of this world who are really good at taking care of temporary affairs. We are all just like the dishonest manager, and we are all just like billionaire bunker builders, in that when it comes to the amount of time and energy and passion and intelligence and hard work and resources and shrewdness, there's no limit in terms of what we're willing to put into our temporary future and our temporary comfort so often. And these are things that, while they're good and they're enjoyable things, they don't last and they don't satisfy. And so like all sin, when we pause for a moment and we examine it, and we really think about it for what it is, it's foolish. It's foolish not to seek the greatest possible future for ourselves and for others. It's foolish to only focus on a future that is fleeting. And so the question before us is really this. How can we pursue eternal things just as wisely and just as shrewdly as we do temporary things in our own lives? And so Jesus offers an answer, three answers really, uh, for us in the rest of this passage. So we're going to look at, according to Jesus, we're going to look at who we love. We're going to look at true riches and we're going to look at our friends, all right? So let's look first at who we love. I think it's, it's all too easy for us, um, and myself included, when we look at a parable like this, to come to the end of it, see some possible applications that we can put into our own lives, and immediately begin to think, okay, what am I going to do for God? How am I going to get better? And that's the easy part, honestly. But if you're like me, you love personal change management programs. And you could do personal change man management programs all day long because it feels so good and you get so much better and you get so much more done. But Jesus' agenda for his disciples on the way to Jerusalem is not principally about what they do, but about who they love. 
And so in verse 13, Jesus sums up this whole teaching by saying, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So what's he saying there? He's saying it's about love, it's about devotion. It's about obedience from the heart. It's about who we worship. So the whole reason, Jesus is saying, why we're tempted to put so much energy and time and passion into temporary rather than eternal things is because we have a misplaced devotion. It's possible, mind you, to enjoy coming to Redeemer on a Sunday morning for worship, to enjoy being with your community group on Wednesday, even to enjoy some of the ways that you serve in ministry around the church. And yet, below the surface, lurking in some deep place in your heart, is this feeling and this resentment that you're not doing that other thing, that you're missing out on something somehow because of all this spiritual stuff that's going on in your life. And if you could just get rid of that spiritual stuff in your life and all this extra worship and commitment uh, to Redeemer and, and to God's people, maybe you'd be happier. And that's a good indication if you feel that lurking resentment down in there somewhere, it's a good indication that you're devoted to the one and you're despising the other. But brothers and sisters, let me, let me just tell you this morning, from one who feels that tug of missing out all too often, there's really only one way to satisfy the temporary longings of our heart, and that's by seeking the eternal. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in our hearts, but man cannot discover the work that God has done from the beginning. You kind of hear the echoes of Eden, right, in that passage. There's this longing for eternity in our hearts, and there's this longing to, be, to see a day, to be back in the experience of a day when man was created to enjoy God in the beginning of history. And so we so badly, we want to discover, we want to feel what it was like to contemplate and what it was like to enjoy God and what he did for us from the beginning. But sin makes us look in the shadows for what we were created to enjoy in the light. And so Blaise Pascal, I think he captured this idea so well when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. And he goes on to say that this, this God-shaped eternal whole in our hearts can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, God himself. So there's no fixing our temporary fixation on fleeting futures if we don't ask the hard question. Who or what do we really love? And if you find that you are loving the one, despising the other, repent and believe. That's the, it's the same answer for believers and non-believers. Repent and believe. When you find those misplaced loves, when you find those misplaced devotions in your heart, and you're so excited to go after the other thing versus the Lord himself, repent and believe. Okay, so next, what else does Jesus say in terms of how can we seek the greatest possible future, eternal future for ourselves and for others? He says, look at the true riches. So in verses 10 through 11, Jesus talks about faithfulness and being entrusted with the true riches. So the main idea here is this. What we so often call our own, namely our homes, our jobs, 
our families, our futures, our investments, our work, whatever it is, those are the, th the things that we call our own are the things that don't really belong to us, according to this verse. They belong to the Lord, it says, and he gives us stewardship and responsibility to take care of them. The true riches that Jesus talks about in these verses are the eternal riches that are ours in the gospel through Jesus Christ. And it's every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. You could look later at Ephesians chapter 1 and read a long list of every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. It's great things like adoption as sons, grace, redemption, forgiveness of our trespasses, the inheritance with the saints, the promised Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is saying that faithfulness in the small things, faithfulness in the temporary things that, don't, that we don't actually own, but we call our own, equates to faithfulness with the true riches of faith in Christ. So how do, you, how do you know if you're looking at the true riches or not? How do you know if uh, Jesus is entrusting you with the true riches? I, I think, I think probably one of the best ways to test this is, is by this, um, and there's another verse in, in Matthew where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I want you to imagine that there's, there's a thing, there's, a, there's an object that you own, Jesus says you don't really own in the first place, but there's an object that you own, your home. Let's take that, for example. And now I want you to imagine that there's a thread connected to your, from your home out off into the distance somewhere. And so your job as a steward, and, and you're checking in on your stewardship, if you're a faithful and trusted steward, your job is to pull on that string and to keep pulling it and to keep pulling it and to keep pulling it and to see where it connects to. And if that string connects to eternal riches that you've been entrusted with, then you're being a good steward of that temporary thing. If that string, as you pull on it and pull on it and pull on it, ends up circling back around to the thing itself, then you know that you're not being faithful with those true riches. You're only being faithful with the temporary things. Or you're only focusing on the temporary things. So the temporary in our lives, Jesus is saying, is supposed to point to the eternal. And what we do with the temporary things indicates what we feel and what we've been entrusted with about the eternal. So this could be food, it could be your homes, families, retirements, boats. I mean, all, all these things are good things, and, and we need to plan for them. We, we need food, we need clothes, we need our families, we need to take care of them, we need homes. And if our government shut down, we need to plan for our retirements <laughs> and not depend on them. We, do we need our boats? I don't know. But the question really is, where does that string connect to? Are these things that we're looking at, are they the temporary riches? Are they ends unto themselves? Or are they connected to the eternal riches that God desires for us? And so maybe just a little challenge for us out here. I know when you start talking about money and resources, uh, we get a little jittery. And you know, maybe the temptation would be to put a, put a cap on our wealth and say, okay, past, past that point, you should just give it all away. But it's really, as we already looked at, it's really a matter of the heart, right? It's not a matter of amount earned and amount given or amount stewarded uh, and amount earned. But maybe here's, here's just a thought. If, if you feel like God might be asking you to consider whether you've been entrusted with the eternal riches in the same way that he's entrusting you to temporary riches, just ask yourself the 10% rule. Say, if, if I could live with 10% less of this 
in the temporary and give 10% more to the eternal, what would that be like? What would that feel like for me? That'd be 10% less income and 10% more giving? I don't, I don't know. 10% less time spent on temporary things, 10% more time spent on eternal things. Um, I don't know. But some of those things are just questions, I think, with, between you and the Lord. Your skills and your talents, I'll throw those into that mix as well. But is, is he asking you this morning, perhaps, to consider an investment, a different kind of investment into the eternal? So, finally, we've looked at where our heart's at. We've looked at where our, our riches, where our, our treasure is really at. And now, Jesus says, look at your friends. So in verse 9, look back at that verse with me. Jesus tells us, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So it's kind of a strange phrase. Really, this parable is full of strange phrases, right? Shrewdness and now unrighteous wealth, eternal dwellings. So here's what it means. The manager in the parable used his shrewdness with resources to make friends who would receive him when all else failed, when his job failed. These friends would remember him and welcome him into their homes because of what he did for them. And so what Jesus is saying here is, we can do the same thing, but on an eternal and a grander scale. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment a time in the future when you and I go to be with the Lord. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I definitely don't know when it will be. It could be this afternoon on your drive home. Uh, it could be 80 years from now in a hospital bed. Or it could be when Jesus returns. But all I know is that it will happen someday to all of us. And on that day, we enter into the Lord's presence. And after the initial shock, we begin to look around. And what we see is this great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth that no one can count. And then, as we continue to look around, we start to recognize some faces in this multitude. And, and way over there, in the back of the great multitude, is your neighbor, Luis. And you used to have house parties where you'd invite the whole neighborhood over, and your community group would come over as well. And that's where Luis first heard the gospel, was at one of those parties. And so Luis is in this great multitude, and he welcomes you. He welcomes you into heaven. And over there, on, on another, another corner uh, of this great multitude, uh, the other side is your friend Sarah from work. And you invited her over for dinner a few times because you knew she was lonely. And you prayed for her to know the Lord. And she's there, and she welcomes you into your new home with the Lord. And way over there, way, way in the back with the rest of Africa, is a man named Sanyu, and he's from Uganda. And you know what? You've never met Sanyu before, but you gave your time, and you gave your resources, and you gave your attention, and you gave your energy to the missions committee, and you helped build a resource center in the middle of Africa, a place that you have never been, and Sanyu welcomes you that day like you've known each other your entire lives. And there's so many more, and that goes on and on and on in this multitude of faces that you recognize. 
And there's this extra blessing. There's certainly a blessing that comes with being with the Lord that day, but there's an extra blessing that comes with the happiness that fills your heart because the way that you made friends in light of eternity. And so for some of you, maybe this is really exciting. You think about that vision of your life. And this is really exciting, and you're already doing something new and different with your house, and you're doing something different with your income, and you're doing something different with your free weeknights, and you're doing something different with your job, and you're discovering the joy of rejecting temporary comforts for eternal things. And we, let me just say, we, your session and your pastor, we're excited for you as you're doing those things. Seriously, this is an exciting thing in a believer's life. And for some of you, this really this sounds, kind of norm, this sounds kind of new, and honestly, it sounds kind of difficult, and it is. And so we're not following Jesus into a comfortable suburb of Jerusalem as we're following him on this teaching series uh, in Luke. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory. It says, Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him, of course, is the essential point. So I want, want you to know that we're here for you in this process. This is not an easy process in, in seeing your loves, in seeing your treasure where it really is, and in learning to see your friends in light of eternity. But we want to be your church family on mission together with you. But in order to get there, we all, myself included, have to look past the temporary and into the eternal future. So let's pray about that toward that end. Father, what a, what a great vision you give us for our lives uh, in this passage and in so many others, Lord, where you call us out of the temporary, you call us out of the fleeting, and you call us toward the eternal. And Lord, there is so much joy and there is so much more satisfaction in the eternal when we stop and we think about it. So Lord, would you, would you do the work of this passage in our lives? Would you make us just as industrious and just as astute and just as shrewd even about eternal things as we tend to be about temporary things? Or would you drive into the heartbeat of Redeemer the passion for eternal things, for people's hearts, for our own hearts, Lord, so that we're following you as you desire for your disciples to follow you? It's not easy. It's not comfortable. There is difficulty along the way. But, Lord, you've given us your spirit. You've given us a great example and a great captain uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we follow him, and we thank you uh, for his work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.